Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Amelie, the 2001 film written by Guillaume Laurent and directed by Jean-Pierre Genet. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetas. Hi. Okay, so before we dive in, we have a couple announcements to make. So as we had mentioned before, for our 900 patron goal, once we pass that, we'll be doing a public episode on our favorite movies of the 90s. So our favorite movies, top 10 from 1990 to 1998. And then a patron exclusive episode on our top five favorite films from the year 1999, which, as we all know, is a seminal year for film. There's lots of things to talk about. So that will be happening as our 900 goal. Where does The Phantom Menace fall on everyone's list? Find out. Wow. Find it out. Is. I forgot. <laughs> 99. Number one, obviously. It's episode one. <laughs> and then, so the results of our poll for which trilogy series we're going to do for the 1,000 patron goal are in, and it was kind of surprising and interesting how it played out. So on some of the platforms, Back to the Future was clearly in the lead, but overall, the most votes actually went to The Godfather. So for a 1,000, we will be talking about The Godfather trilogy, which I'm really excited about. I haven't seen those in a long time. I feel like I haven't really talked about them either, so I'm really excited to just, like, talk about The Godfather with you. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's going to be a whole thing. It's a thing. thing. (laughs) There's going to be so much Brando from over here. You guys are going to be like, There it is. Yes. And, like, young Pacino impressions. Like, pre this guy, he was like, not the personal, strictly personal. So it was just like this very, it was like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's totally building. Different. Yeah. The midpoint of all midpoints, perhaps also. There's yep. so many things absolutely that, that we're going to get into. So that's really exciting. And obviously, because people were very excited about Back to the Future, we will be doing that in a future goal also, because we've got to talk about that also. So that's all of that. But for now, Amelie. So Trisha, Yay. Amelie was in your top 10 Film uh, favorite films of the 2000s. Yes, yes. Number, number three. Yeah. Tell me about Amelie and your relationship with it. I really, really love this movie. I got to say a little bit about it during the top 10 episode. And I feel like I didn't do a very good job articulating what makes it so endearing to me. I love that this is, I don't know, I just feel like it's one of these unique love stories that, you know, at its heart is a love story, but really is just a really beautiful sort of character study. And it has a really precise vision of the world of the story. And the theme is really present in like every single aspect of it as well. And so, you know, on its surface, you might just say like, oh, a lonely girl learns to connect with some of the people around her and falls in love in process. But it just feels like it takes in so much of life and the experience of being human that it it somehow has this greater poetry to it or, or somehow feels more profound than that sort of like tiny explanation that I just gave or logline that I sort of just gave. And I just think it's so beautiful. Like it looks, it's beautiful to look at, like every frame of it is really beautiful. I mean, it's very stylized and we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. But it has this incredible score by Jan Tiersen that I used to listen to 
all the time. Mm-hmm. And that, I, that also does a lot of work in the movie for the record. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just, it's a beautiful movie that is so hopeful and full of life and so playful. And it's just great. I, it's It's just a great little film. I really, really love it. Yeah, I was definitely struck by how, like you're saying, it's it's about her, but it's also about all these people. And it's kind of doing that thing where you you meet a, a bunch of people and as the story progresses, you're kind of following their mm-hmm. stories and her, you know, it's kind of through her and people's interactions with her or like reflections from her that they kind of change or we see life through their yeah. eyes also, which I think adds uh, to the the kind of the wide texture and like of of life that you're talking about, where you get to see a little bit of everybody's lives and and those glimpses through her, while also following this simple story. Exactly. Awesome. And Alex, what about you? I feel like we've I don't think we've ever talked about Amelie. That's interesting. Maybe for the yeah. first time, we've never wow. talked about a movie before at the podcast. Wow, so tell me, yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> you guys yeah. seem to like you have a history on every single movie, and somehow I, this is the fresh movie that you've <laughs> never <friend>. spoken about <laughs> or has ever come up. I love it. Which is interesting because, and maybe I just kind of lost this movie for a while in my life, but revisiting mm. it for this podcast, it was like, oh yeah, wait a minute. I watched this movie a lot in mm. high school. Like this was a big influence on me and I really like as far as just a movie that is so directed you know like as as an aspiring as an aspiring director it's like ooh, I can see the filmmaking and it's so cool and I love how it looks and I love the music and the way it's cut and the visual effects there's so much going on that is like above and beyond what you would expect from like you know that simple log line like you said Trisha it seems like a very simple small movie but it it feels so big and it, and it has just scope to it, even though it really is just about normal people in Paris. And so, yeah, I I really love this movie and I'm so glad to have revisited it and kind of remember that love that I've had for it. And I, I think about, there, there were a few movies during this era, like, you know, I think I saw also, you know, before Sunset in high school, mm-hmm. you know, near the end of high school. And then... I think a few years later, Vicky Cristina Barcelona came out. And there, there, there's like a mm-hmm. series of movies that cemented my incredibly romantic <laughs> vision of Europe and like European cities. <laughs> like yeah. these movies like are totally wrapped up in my feelings about places like Paris or Barcelona. And, and this movie, like, I mean, yeah, I just wanted to like live in this world. I wanted to go move to Paris and be in a charming like street corner and you know, be in the world of Amelie because it's just so magical. Mm-hmm. Something really interesting, I was uh, reading uh, some trivia on IMDb and the director and the crew would actually clean, anytime they were shooting on location in Paris, they would clean the area of all debris, grime, graffiti. Wow. So like, it really is an imaginary version of Paris that is like this pristine fantasy world in Amelie's mind, which is interesting. It's, you know, there's, there's the reality of maybe like a real city that has its own problems. And then the world that this movie creates, which is kind of this fantasy world. But I I love, I love going there. You can't Mm -hmm. have Royale with cheese uh, wrappers like on the street in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't look right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's really interesting to hear because, you know, this is one of those movies where the location is a character, right? Like the world is, a part of her is an extension of her and how she sees things and all that stuff. So it's, yeah, it's a movie where you couldn't extract it from this place and put it anywhere else. And it's always fun to see movies that are really well realized and embrace that and and execute it so nicely. 
Yeah. Brian, what about you? Did you see it when it came out? Did you see it later? Uh, I definitely saw it uh, around the time it came out. I don't remember exactly whether it was, you know, six months later or two years later, whatever. But kind of like I mentioned when we talked about Black Swan recently, it was a movie that I watched and loved and went out and bought and then watched again the second time recently. <laughs> like, just <laughs> never watched it again, you know. But yeah, like, I really like this movie. Actually, when I worked at Hollywood Video in Philadelphia, um, oh, they had nice. the French, or sorry, the uh, foreign film section. So I would just, like, rent some of those and bring them home. So I also rented uh, Happenstance and He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not, which were two other uh, Audrey Totu movie, like, sort of French rom-coms from one year on either side of Amelie. And yeah, like this movie a lot, but just hadn't watched it again. So it was really nice to to revisit it. And it definitely has that sort of, you know, it's stylized, but it's, as you guys were kind of saying, like it's, that is part of the theme. It's part of the, it's kind of like we talked about with Moonlight. Like we are seeing this world through yeah. the character's eyes, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. when the, when something happens, it's happening because that's how, that's how this sort of storyteller that is telling us the story yeah. is seeing it happen, uh, which is why you can't have litter in the street and stuff like that, because that's not how this character sees the world. Maybe certain moments in the movie, but not overall. And mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, lots to talk about, but just uh, overall, thumbs up. Yeah. This movie really reminds me that there was sort of an era of like, I don't know, sort of like a heyday of whimsical thing, mm-hmm. like whimsical uh-huh. movies mm-hmm. that kind of happened, you know, and Eternal Sunshine was right on this and they made, made like Science of Sleep and mm-hmm. some of these others that are just like the whimsy. It's so whimsical and, <laughs> yeah. you know, everything's like made of cardboard or like every one has like a really quaint motorbike that they're riding on or <laughs> something like it was just, I think it was back in college. I put together like a list of like the indie romance and the whimsical romance. And there were so many of these, like, I don't know. I wonder how it affected us potentially as millennials. Like Alex, you're talking about, you right. know, this is how you see Europe, right? Because of <laughs> right. different movies, like romantic movies that came out at the time. It's like, maybe how we see love is so influenced by like the quirkiness mm. and the like yeah. whimsy of it. Like Garden State, I mean, is so right. part of this whimsy moment. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And so, like, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, right? I right, wouldn't right. say that the, the whole thing about that as a trope is that that's framing through which a male character sees a female character. And obviously, that's not the case in Amelie. However, there's a lot of like, sort of the quirkiness about her where she's kind of messy and kind of unpredictable in some ways and bold and and like there's some of that here I think also in the DNA of this movie and how much of it came from this movie and how much of it was just sort of in the zeitgeist of like maybe this is what we want from our romantic films right now who can say Mm -hmm. but uh, definitely an interesting to me like maybe the quintessential and maybe the best example of this kind of movie in terms of like yeah. rewatchability. It mm. it doesn't feel like it's aged in the way that some of those other movies feel like they have. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, I'd be really curious to sort of track the the life of that late 90s early aughts style thing cuz you've mm-hmm. got like Oliver Stone doing it really heavily uh, in like the 90s and then you've got like Three Kings 
and then into Amelie, Eternal Sunshine. You know, it, there was uh, it's going on all over the place. And then like there, there were some Tony Scott movies that didn't go over too well because they were so stylized, like Domino and like Man on Fire was a good example, but even that was just like every shot is like, look at this, what's happening? You're and talking then, about like aggressive style about aggressive things style. in general. He's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, whim, not, all, whimsy. not whimsy. No, 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 no yeah. style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, the, the just movies that are like sort of doing this almost music video type thing, you know? Right. And these were that was the era where I fell in love with film, basically. So yeah. maybe that's why I, when I see a Moonlight or a Parasite or something like that, I'm like, ooh, okay, this movie is like doing style things, but it's doing it for a reason. And it's making me feel more than if you just told me this story. And, but like you said, some of those, you watch them now and you're like, good God, how did they, yeah. like, <laughs> this doesn't even look like a movie anymore. And Amelie still feels absolutely like, you know, it doesn't feel dated when you watch mm-hmm. it. I think the big problem is that a lot of those movies tried to incorporate the whimsy into something that's otherwise kind of grounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eternal Sunshine is another example where it's like, does a really good balance. And we talked about this in the episode balancing some stuff that feels grounded and real while being totally, you know, bonkers by having this construction of like, it's all a dream. And, Mm -hmm. and Amelie, yeah, has a careful sort of framework of like a narrator is going to tell you a thing and the whole world is through this character's eyes and her imagination. But some of those other movies, I feel like Garden State is an example where it's like, here's a really quirky, big, whimsical thing potentially that's trying to act like it's also real life. And I, it, some of that, I feel like, doesn't work as well. Like a, like a family living in, like, a boat in a dumpster trash place or something, yeah. <laughs> For example. Tell <laughs> me, like, the bumpiest part of that movie. <laughs> I will say that I, I feel like for whatever reason... Without darkness, I can't really get on board with lightness. I think oh. that's kind of like a weird Michael quirk. And so when it's just whimsy, it like is kind of off-putting to me. And mm. so I, I feel like that's maybe why I gravitate toward the more like the balance and, and why, like you're saying, Eternal Sunshine does this great balance of both where it's like it hits the bittersweet and I need the bitter in order to like accept the sweet because... I'm dramatic and complicated. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. All right. As a kid, I was fascinated by computers. I remember coming home from school at age five and proclaiming to my parents that we needed to get a personal computer and jump onto the information superhighway. Computers were like magic, and I wanted to learn all about how they worked. But at that time, when I went to learn about how computers worked, all I could find were dense books about transistors and ones and zeros and all kinds of things that really didn't help me actually understand what a computer is doing. If only I had Brilliant. Brilliant is an online learning platform for STEM, and it takes a hands-on approach so you learn by doing. I recently jumped into their Computer Science Fundamentals course, which is all about learning the key ideas of computer science in a fun and simple way. Each page of the course has some kind of visual element, some text, a couple paragraphs at most, and a multiple choice question which prompts you to think about and internalize the bit you just learned. But Brilliant goes even further. In the second part of the course, all about writing computer programs, each page is interactive. Your goal on each page is to give instructions to a cartoon drone to help it navigate through a simple grid and deliver a package at its destination. But you're not writing complex code, you're just dragging and dropping simple instructions for it to follow. Up, down, right, right, etc. 
The whole course is a fun and effective way to quickly understand the fundamentals of how computers work. So much more helpful than a dense book about binary and microtransistors. Brilliant is full of these kinds of fascinating and challenging courses on a variety of intriguing topics. If you want to learn more about Brilliant and help support our show, head to brilliant.org slash beyond the screenplay and sign up for free. Or simply click the link in the show notes. The first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Thanks to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode. Well, then that could bring us into talking about Amelie itself, because something that I'm very curious to hear from you guys about is sort of like, how how are you following or rooting for Amelie and Amelie and Nino as this movie goes on? Because I feel like into the second act, the movie does get dark, but in a way that's really quiet. When she starts like meddling with Joseph the and no, no, Joseph and Georgette. Like, oh, okay. like the, oh, meddling, yeah, the meddling yeah, yeah. with like oh, yeah. crappy people is fun, right? Because yeah. you're just like, cool, go screw them up, you know? And, well, except then the grocer almost like has a heart attack. I'm like, well, it's, you know, but it's right. like when she Still makes a couple out of nothing who, as far as we know, have no interest in each other until they find out the other one is potentially interested. And then we sort of follow that relationship as it never really is great. It's always sort of like eh, questionable and stuff. And then, you know, as Amelie sort of is doing all these things for other people and almost getting like addicted to this thing without really dealing with her own stuff. And then Nino is like really creepy when he's the ghost on the ride. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, like a weird section. It's really <laughs> weird. Yeah. So it's interesting because I feel like it is doing darkness but just in a in a very subtle kind of way you know it's not like amelie is you know strung out in heroin in the corner or anything like that right it's like that's not <laughs> what this movie is but i was fascinated rewatching it and just sort of tracking how it is sort of always being a little challenging and, and you're always sort of going like do i want the character to be doing this right now or is the character happy that they're doing this right now that kind of stuff so anyway curious about your guys thoughts on that yeah i, I feel like those moments that you're pointing out are the like kind of my favorite moments in some ways or my favorite aspects of it of like that couple like you're saying that is kind of made out of nothing they have this kind of passionate amazing you know time Jurassic Park sex (laughs) 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 right the T-Rex oh no I'm not gonna finish that sentence (laughs) Tyrannosaurus um, sex you can say it no (laughs) no the ripples happen when the T-Rex is coming Um, (laughs) Uh, Well, this has been our episode on Amelie. (laughs) 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 Wow, you guys just ruined my favorite movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's done. (laughs) Both movies. Both movies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I'm never going to watch either of those the same. (laughs) But yes, then you see their, their relationship kind of deteriorate after you know, that exciting first meeting. I feel like I like that because it it starts to get at that bittersweet thing that I was mm. saying that I like, where right. love and life is hard. And I think when movies make it too easy or like too all flowers and rose petals is when I kind of disengage a little bit or I'm like, okay, well, that's a nice fantasy story. But I I feel like there's more, I derive more meaning when, there are characters that have loved and lost, like the the bartender or the, or the woman that owns mm-hmm. that place has that like really tragic story about what happened to her and right. the 
trapeze and breaking, you know, her leg and now she limps. And, you know, I, I feel like all of that kind of adds weight to the world and kind of increases the, the stakes almost for Amelie of like, you know, nothing is guaranteed. Like love isn't guaranteed in this world, no matter your, your perspective on it. And so you really do have to go for it and snatch it and try because life can be unfair. So those elements, I, I was also tracking that a little bit and I really appreciated what they added to the, the texture of the world. Yeah, I actually found this, found this movie to be pretty bittersweet throughout. I, I think mm-hmm. I, I think it's there's this shiny, golden hued exterior that is you know so green. Charm- it's more more green or hued, green, yeah. really. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, so there's a lot color. of gold. I, White I then becomes <laughs> yellow. You're bathing, whole, you're like, bathing in color in this movie. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. It's, you know, I, I, wrote, I wrote a note. This whole movie is a sumptuous treat. That was my analytical mm. note watching this movie. Mine was it's so green. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I found you know from the very beginning when they're kind of doing her you know already kind of whimsical childhood where it's like you know her heart beats so fast from being touched but it's like it meant that she was like homeschooled in a shut-in and her mom died from somebody falling on her <laughs> and even just like the story of like the fish like the fish yeah the moment mm-hmm. when they put the fish into the river and like the fish is looking up at her and then the raindrops come and like blur it out. Like it, and there's this really kind of sweetness and darkness right from the beginning. And, and the music, uh, you know, the Jan Tiersen's music throughout is also writing that line of both just genuinely beautiful and like kind of like life affirming, but then also quite sad and quite, you know, melancholy a lot of the time. So mm-hmm. I, 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 that's part of why I love this movie is because I think the, that bittersweet mood is like, like my mood that I love to get from like a, a movie like this. Like I, right. I don't want it to be a movie where I do kind of shut down because it's all sweet or all sad. Like a, this mm-hmm. bittersweet mood is like hits my spot. So mm-hmm. it was really interesting watching this and realizing that it came out the same year as the Royal Tenenbaums because that opening is mm. a Wes Anderson movie but mm, right, like right. this but it's not it's like a diff, it's its own thing but it has that kind of bittersweet dark humor like telling this kind of tragic story in a whimsical way that creates this interesting tone and even like the framing of it like a lot of it felt very Wes Andersony and it was just interesting and I I did appreciate that section a lot also, Big Fish was two years later, you know, which also sort yep. of fits into this, like, mm-hmm. this whimsy. decade mm-hmm. of whimsy. Yeah. 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 The decade Narrated of whimsy. Whimsy. Yep. whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that I agree with you, Alex. And I think that one of the ways that the movie achieves that tone that you're talking about is that death is a part of the world from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Amelie's mother dies in a horrifying way. <laughs> yeah. Which is also treated as a very comedic way. It is. Which is a nice way of right. setting the tone of like, this movie is going to live in both of these worlds. Exactly yeah. right. It's it's even down to the construction of the sentence that the narrator says. Mm. She's like, instead of a baby brother, God sends her this woman who is a tourist that decides she wants to end her life by jumping <laughs> off the whatever. Just even those two phrases where it's like, it's a humorous juxtaposition within that sentence, mm-hmm. right? Like, we wanted this. We got this other thing that was the worst possible thing you could have imagined, but 
in kind of a funny way, I guess. But then, yeah, down to the goldfish where it's like the goldfish is suicidal. That's why he jumps out of the moon, right? Like, and even the, you know, inside what I would consider to be the inciting incident of this movie is the death of Lady Diana. And Mm -hmm. that's the death piece that's right there. And that becomes, you know, that becomes sort of the backdrop of the whole plot where, you know, the grocer's assistant is obsessed with her and people are sort of talking about that very public, very famous death as being crucial to sort of our understanding of this time period where there was a death that was very public that a lot of people thought about that seemed, that shook a lot of people at the time mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and really shakes people in this movie. And, you know, the, Amelie, there's that whole section where then Amelie sees her own, like, funeral on the TV yeah. where it's like, oh, this, you know, this amazing care giver of the world, like Mother Teresa figure has perished at her young age. and But like never took time to herself kind of thing. Exactly. Like there's like little hints of like what she's going to be dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. All of that is that death is a part of the world, but at the same time, within the boundaries of the main story, nobody gets hurt is mm. the other thing that I think is really mm. critical. So there's this, there's this base layer of we understand that death is a part of life, but this movie is about life. And we're like focusing on the life part and the death part just kind of makes the life part, throws the life part into relief or makes the life Mm. part even sweeter. So we're not ignoring that the death part is there, but at the same time, the boundaries of the world are very safe for the characters. I'm never worried that something really bad is going to happen to Amelie in this movie or any of the other like named characters that we start to spend time with. And so it's a really interesting, um, again, it makes the theme richer without losing that very precise tone, I think. There's not many films that that give you this feeling of just like life is happening everywhere. And it's yes. not it's not just from your one perspective, but like it's, there's so much life happening, you could not even contain it all. Like it, you know, there's those little sequences where the narrator is saying, at precisely mm-hmm. this moment, there are two wine glasses dancing on a table. And at the same time, you know, this man crossed out his friend's name from the address book. Oh, yeah. Is, Another instance of death. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that, all that is part of, you know, the whimsy aesthetic, you know, the narrator saying these like minutia things. But there's a more profound element to it as well, where it's like the movie both kind of begins and ends with these moments of zooming out and just being like, OK, yeah, Amelie's little world here with these particular characters was just one little slice of this vast world of life that's just constantly happening. Well, thematically, to me, this is a story about the interconnectedness of life and of Mm. people to each other. And Mm -hmm. like having those zoom out like montages of this is what was happening at this precise, precise moment here and here and here is, you know, echoing the theme, which is that Amelie is behaving in her life. That's sort of her whole problem as the movie opens. She's behaving in this isolated way because people have made her isolated, right? Her father, her mother died and her father is very cold to her and everything. And they they have that wonderful moment where it's like, she tried having boyfriends and they were (laughs) not great. Um, But, you know, we see that she's basically living this lonely, disconnected life and finding this relic, right? Again, the inciting incident is mm. finding that relic, that tin box of things, which actually gets resolved very early on, right? Right. That mm-hmm. that storyline. But 
it opens Amelie's mind about how she might be connected to other people. And it's as she starts pursuing those avenues of connection with all kinds of people in her life, with her father, with the, her coworkers at the restaurant where she works, and even, you know, strangers or people she sees every day but doesn't know very well, like the grocer and the grocer's assistant and her neighbor that, you know, lives, is also a shut-in in his flat, which is, I want to talk about him because he's great. Yeah. As a supporting character, but it's as she starts pursuing these avenues of connection that she becomes able to like open herself up to love and to life in all of its various forms as it's happening around her every day. That's the thing is that her eyes are not really open to the way that life is happening around her or to the way that she's the ways that she is connected to it, all of these other lives that are surrounding her constantly. And so I love those moments. They don't exist for whimsy's sake alone. They right. are echoing the theme. It's a larger uh, expansion of the theme. It, again, it's what makes the footprint of this movie feel bigger yeah. than it is. And uh, kind of a an offshoot of that thematically that really resonated with me is kind of noticing characters searching for meaning in life. Mm. Like, you know, and this, this can lead to the painter um, neighbor because I really like him. But also, you know, Nino's book, of like, you know, going mm-hmm. going around and collecting the thrown away, you know, snapshot mm-hmm. things and like piecing them together to look at these photos of people that have also thrown them away. And then just a total creep, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty weird, <laughs> but it's kind of like weird and like that American beauty way right. where like the guy films everything. And it's like, that's definitely creepy, but like I can understand right. like the meaning that you're finding in it. And, and you know, that Nito's obsessed with this one guy, right. That like always has this, like, I want to know who this person is and I want to understand why he is this, you know, they don't, they never say any of that also like in the text, but you can just get that right. sense of mm. like, like I'm with him. Like I want to know what yeah. the deal is too. And then you kind of get the answer and it's a little, you know, you could read it as disappointing. You know, he's just the repair guy and it just kind of happenstance that like by him living his life, this thing is generated that then this person is found. But that's kind of also what's like beautiful and cool about it is that it's mm-hmm. just, this is life happening and like the meaning is life. Right. Well, and and that he got the answer to his question. You know what I mean? Like he was right. just, right. he was so excited to just know what's going on. Yeah, he's right. not disappointed well, at all. He's really right. excited actually. Yeah. And I love that that's the grand gesture, right? Or like sort of the grand romantic yeah. gesture of the movie is that Amelie sets up for him the right. answer to his riddle mm-hmm. that like, again, without them ever, ever having really spoken to each other, She's like, I'm going to help you solve a mystery that has been, you know, sort of torturing you this whole time. And what a great, again, the romantic gesture is not something about the two. It's not confined to this like world of the two of them as though they're the only people in the world that exist. It's about helping Nino also connect to the larger world around him. Which is what, sorry, which is, I'm about to get really excited, which is what romance (laughs) is like really about and should be about, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like our models of romance in Hollywood are all so closed in and so narrow about like, I'm this person, I have this problem and you're this other person and then we're everything to each other and like you complete me and then this is the circle of two that is closed now. And that is not a healthy version of romance and no movies should be, more movies should be bigger than that, right? Mm. Like 
real romantic models are about or should be about, you know, finding your partner is about someone who completes your life or opens you up to more life in a way that is imaginative and doesn't just like, okay, now your life is ended. Marry this person, live in one house forever. It's all done. Like that's not (laughs) a realistic or a healthy vision. I don't think of romance and Amelie does the opposite of that, that the romantic gesture is again, opening Nino up and her up to like, we are connected to all of these people in our community, including this photo booth repair person that we've been wondering about. <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah, I mean the, the bad version of the rom-com, especially with female character with female protagonists is like, I, I got the guy. So that's what I needed in my life. So now I'm exactly. happy. Right. But Amelie, Little Women, Pride and Prejudice, Mulan, like these are all stories about people who like, they make their own change. Like the most, the thing we care about the most is their happiness and and their personal change and them overcoming that. And then, you know, getting the guy is like the the icing on the cake. It's like, well, now that's a nice reward, but like, you don't care about that as much as you care about their actual character change. And that's, that should be any movie, obviously, but I think rom-coms are where it's, where it's most likely to get just like very thin and very just like there's not much there, you know? Yeah. As though finding your romantic partner will somehow fix you, right? Right. Like, and right. that's exactly. certainly not the case in this yeah. movie. At some point we should talk about Hitch. <laughs> I think that'd be a really interesting conversation to be had about Hitch. I bet you love that movie. I do. And I did, <laughs> but I certainly, there are things to say. I don't know. I, it's a conversation piece. Our only if you and time. I can dress up as Will Smith and Kevin James. Oh my God. Oh, that's wow. perfect. Done. Oh <laughs> now we have to. Done. As a filmmaker, when you're dealing with 4 to 8K footage, you're dealing with massive files. And massive files call for massive. Massive is a file sharing solution for the modern post professional tired of data caps and bubble wrapped hard drives. Simply create an account to quickly transfer terabytes of data over the cloud. Massive's pay-as-you-go model means you only pay for what you need, and there are virtually no limits to the size of file you can share. Send uncompressed videos to teams around the world and speed up your production cycle. If you sign up today at massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay, you can get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. Thank you to Massive for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Going back to Amelie, let's talk about the ongoing subplot with, I think, is, is, is he called The Glass Man? The Glass Man, yeah, yeah. The Glass yeah. Man, yeah. Played by Samuel L. Uh, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, a different movie. Sorry, <laughs> but I I absolutely love you know mm-hmm. him as a character and as a plot device you know to kind of help Amelia along on her journey of self discovery, and I love the device of this painting, you know, the boating party painting. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's something so kind of magical about using the the figure of the girl in the painting as the allegory for Amelie, and the way they can talk about her allows her to almost have like a therapy session by talking about this third person character who, you know, isn't her, but is obviously her mm-hmm. and they both know it. And so, yeah, I, all those scenes with the two of them were just, it, it's such a clever way to let the characters talk as if they were in therapy about Amelie's, you know, core character flaw, her core problems. Mm-hmm. And most movies, you know, they don't, if, if they're going to, 
have two characters talk about, hey, your problem is this. Because <laughs> yeah. it can just feel like, you know, we just get to an, an arbitrary moment in the movie where the truth has to come out and so then they, they just talk about it. But in this movie, the truth can kind of come out in small doses slowly throughout because there's this safety of one step removed. For, no, we're talking about the girl in the painting. But I just think it's really clever writing to to invent that girl in the painting so they can have these ongoing dialogues about mm-hmm. her. And I feel like as their conversations go on, it, to me, reads as like they both know at some point yeah, of course. when they're talking about yeah. her, you know. And I sure. think that's also just a really interesting relationship too. Yeah. Like, like their relationship. And that it's, you know, it's it's something that he's seems to have been working on and kind of obsessed with also like, I can't solve like this painting, can't figure this thing out. And it's also kind of like you're saying, Trisha, the connection to the world where like he, he can't until Amelie figures herself out. Cause that's, it's all kind of connect- like, I like that aspect of it too. Mm-hmm. And just the, you know, kind of the obsessed artist thing also of like, I'm, I'm here, I can't go outside. And so I'm just trying to perfect this thing. And, but I need your help. And yeah, I like all of that a lot. Well, they have this really beautiful dynamic because in many ways, he's sort of like an archetypal mentor, right? Mm-hmm. And and he, it's it's the video message from him that she gets right at the end of the movie that prompts her to go and, you know, get Nino. Like she right. can't answer the door when he first comes to the door because she's too afraid. And then she watches the video from her neighbor and he's like, go and get him. And, you know, that leads to the sort of resolution of the thing where she finally overcomes that, that last like hurdle that she right. has to get over, which is just open the door. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Yeah. He's the um, knives chow of this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but her relationship with Dufayel is not just one way where he's like, I have everything in life figured out and I'm going to teach it to you. Right. He's actually more shut in than she is and more locked away Mm. from the world because of his condition. And, you know, he just has his video camera pointed at the clock. So he like always knows what time it is up until, you know, Amelie starts sending him videotapes of here's all of the things that are happening in the whole world, right? Here's a horse running in the Tour de France and here's babies swimming in the I'm water. I'm pretty sure those and, videos inspired <laughs> The Ring because like <laughs> each one of those, I was like, this is like a kind of happier version of The Ring video. Really? Wow. Like in horse seven babies. days, he's going to yeah. live. <laughs> something creepy about that. I also. think her videos are beautiful. <laughs> um, anyway, but but again, they have this reciprocal thing where they're they're sort of learning from each other where she's helping him to re-engage with something that he had kind of shut down in his life and he's also sharing some of the wisdom that he has from having lived you know a lot longer than she has and everything and so I just think it's really lovely and I agree with you Alex about those scenes with the painting and being able to talk about that it's a relatively simple device but in this case really effective because it creates a character consistency for Amelie where we know that she can't talk about herself, right? She never talks about herself, um, but she can, you know, talk very passionately about other people and Mm -hmm. engage with other people's lives really enthusiastically. And so I think that just having one step removed it's simple, but it totally works. And it makes us believe that she can she can have this conversation in a way that she wouldn't be able to have another more direct conversation. The Another thought I was having when watching this, uh, I was getting a lot of like Coraline vibes in terms mm. of like, you know, 
one character that's connected to all these characters. It's, it's you know, it's right. about Coraline, but it's also about everybody in the house. Her neighbors, yeah. And it, it felt, you know, I, there was a lot of um, that kind of vibe to it, which I thought was cool and I, I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Even even kind of like the treasure hunty vibe of the mm-hmm. movie is Definitely. kind of, is, is like Coraline. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I wrote another note. Like, I really would love Amelie to set up a delightful treasure hunt for me because it just <laughs> seems like so much fun what she does for people. It's... That's one thing that's also very likable about her character is the the creativity and the length she goes yeah. she goes through to give other people an experience. She's almost right. like you know a, a filmmaker in that way, where she she delights in seeing the amazement on the man's face when he discovers his childhood you know box. And she doesn't need anything from it. Like like that's that is right. its own reward. She doesn't need to be like, "Hi, that was me," or anything like exactly. that. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, and that makes us just love her more. Right. Mm-hmm. So she, she genuinely is in it. To, to see the other person have the experience, yeah. um, which is very likable. The most poignant one, of course, is the letter that she creates from, you know, her, so her landlady or whoever mm-hmm. the apartment manager, you know, who's still obsessed with her husband who died, even though he was a cheating right. jerk. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah, but she, you know, goes to the trouble to create a lost love letter. I believe it crosses the line potentially, but... You know, because it's it, it's she's, most morally like ambiguous, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also definitely. Part, it's also in the part of the movie where things start to fall apart, and it, oh, that's yeah. that's one of the moments where her yeah landlord is like, "Look at this letter I found." Emily's like, "Leave me alone!" Like, I'm, yeah, everything's falling apart. I'm over it. So it's kind of it's almost like part of her moment where things start to s- stop working out, and things consequences are happening now from all of her meddling, right. And that's kind of what I was talking about in the beginning with the this sort of like subtle darkness that's happening here. You know, I was thinking about the 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 like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, you know, uh, triptych in in storytelling. And I was like, the the very end of the third the first act, I think, is her giving the guy the box and he finds it in the phone booth mm-hmm. and, and she's happy. And then it's almost like the next some of the next things we see her do are like now she's getting addicted. So now she's setting mm-hmm. up two strange two people who as far as we know, have no interest in each other. And she's doing things, you know, she's, she's putting her grocer on the, on the brink of death. And she's like mangling this letter, you know, with the, the weird zoom in that's hilarious. And I think that it's like, again, it's just doing this thing where, where we are seeing that it's just on that brink of, we can still love this character and have a nice time and everything, but we're also kind of always going, but are we okay with this point? Or is, has this crossed the line? And then of course, act three, now we like, things come together and she sort of figures out what her own issue is that she hasn't been dealing with up until this point. Well, it's a really great example of the the thesis antithesis, you know, synthesis model that you just mentioned, Bri, because she does go way too far in the other direction and it basically does kind of backfire on her in right. some ways. And, you know, that's sort of the whole thing is that she's totally disengaged and not doing any life either for herself or for anybody else. And then she when she starts to meddle in people's lives, even though she's doing it for good reasons, she's doing it in the shadows. And so she is totally engaged and like, she's got all these schemes. I, I think that's the word that she uses with her neighbor, Dufael. She's like, oh, she's she's devising a stratagem, right? Stratagem, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. She's doing all of these stratagems, but she's not risking anything personally, really, right. until she starts pursuing Nino. That's when she's risking like her own heart and her own like right. 
you know, it, the tricks that she plays on the grocer, he very much deserves. Mm-hmm. A, <laughs> B, R, genius, and I love them. Yeah. <laughs> C, though, he's never going to catch her, right? That's never like a moment that we have in the movie where we're like, oh no, he's going to realize it's her. Like, we know he's never going to realize it's her. And same thing with, you know, her co-workers. It's not like she's ever going to get caught. So she's operating behind this curtain of anonymity and then having to actually show up to places and to potentially meet Nino face to face and really put herself out there. That's, you know, the lesson that she has to learn by the end of the third act. And so I think that's what makes the second act fun to watch, but also we can see that she has gone too far in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's the that kind of almost crisis scene where he does show up at the restaurant where they are supposed yep. to meet and she just can't bring herself to to talk to him. And it's really, it's painful because you feel like you've gone through all this and now that you've gotten him, you can't do it. You're, you still haven't crossed that final hurdle of kind of introversion. So it, the movie is really great at making you want that moment to happen so badly and you know, even going as far as using a visual effect to capture, she melts into a puddle. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> just like the, the the loss of that moment. Like it, it, you screwed it up, and it's it's past now. Interestingly, one thing I think about sometimes is movies where the the protagonist and antagonist never meet, like uh, the Fifth Element and some of the Harry Potters and Lord of the Rings, and like there's there's actually a, a surprising number of movies where they actually never meet, and. There's not many rom-coms where the 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 couple never meets until basically the the last moment, you know. Maybe there's like the you've got males of the world where they they're not aware of each other. <laughs> I was but, about to bring up you've got males. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just think it's it's super interesting that it's like they they basically are I mean, they are in the same space obviously and they do exchange a couple lines, but it's like always in this very very distant kind of way. It's just just interesting. Well, I think I, you've got mail as an example. Sleepless in Seattle is like even more of an example, actually, mm. in terms of the Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan of it all, because they actually never meet face to face in that movie until the very end, which is wild. That right. movie does not hold up, by the way. Some of it is still very charming, but I watched it recently and I was like, you two do not know anything about each other. <laughs> Why? But the thing that I really love about Amelie, though, even though they never meet face to face, is that by nature of the interactions that they're having, they actually do start to get to know a lot about each other. Sure. Where like, you're talking about the whimsical treasure hunt aspect, Alex, and anybody who's like collecting, you know, torn up people's Uh portraits from the photo booth (laughs) would probably be down for a whimsical treasure hunt Uh to get it back. And then I love his one-up move where he takes the picture of her with the question mark right mm-hmm. on her stomach and like photocopies it and starts putting it everywhere where he's just like, you gave this to me in private, but I'm going to put it out here so I can find you. Totally normal dude. There's so much about it. No. <laughs> They're both okay. weird. I okay, know. Fine. I yeah, for each other. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on now. But yeah, they, again, they have actually a lot in common that yeah. you can, that not, not just that we know as the audience, but that, they can tell about each other as they're, you know, interacting even like remotely or, you know, through paper. (laughs) Well, I I think what becomes clear as the movie goes on is they both have some similar origin, you know, where they both are these quiet people who have big imaginations and 
mm-hmm. kind of are interested in others uh, as, as, you know, as kind of like the quiet observer. They both seem like they're the kind of quiet, I'm going to stand back and look out at the world kind of person. Uh, so in that way, they are this, these like strangely, uh, both very unique people, but both very similar uh, for each other. And I have to say like the, one of my favorite parts of this whole movie is when they finally do meet. I think it's one oh, of the best so like, beautiful. first kiss moments I've ever seen. It is. I just, I love how like, I don't know, like delicate that moment is, but like also because it's so delicate and gentle, it's very like highly like sensual. And because it's not, oh my God, we finally got each other. Let's make out now. There's something very, I don't know. It, it just feels somehow perfect for the movie and the characters and everything. So yeah, whoever thought of that uh, in the team, well done. Well, it does something <laughs> that this movie does impeccably throughout, which is that sex and sexuality are very much a part of the text of this movie, yes. but they are not overly romanticized. Mm-hmm. They're just sort of a part of life in the way that everything else is kind of a part of life. Yeah, And so I... I love, and, and and that's why that moment feels different and feels special because, you know, Nino works at this sex shop and like mm-hmm. is surrounded by like sex and nudity and, you know, all of this stuff every day. And there are many different instances where like sex is discussed or shown in the movie as just in sort of this matter of fact way. Like this is what people do. This is who we are. This is a part of life. Um, Sometimes it's meaningful. Sometimes it's just really not, you know, in the case of that scene we have with Amelie earlier with uh, some faceless boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And, and even in, you know, the first opening montage, it's like (laughs) Amelie's conception. It's like, here's a sperm that made a dash for the egg. And Mm -hmm. then here Amelie was born nine months later. And, you know, all of that, the, the sex part is just, in here in a way that I think is really hard to, I don't know. I was going to say really hard to do an American film potentially. Oh, and, I, was um, saying, right. it, it I think very there's a cultural French. thing here. Yeah. yeah. Because you couldn't have a film with this tone and this, this kind of like lighthearted love of life whimsy and have explicit sexual content in it in an American film, I think, because it would suddenly put it in this new category of right. oh, like a hard R like <laughs> sex movie. <laughs> and 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 it, it just feels like the French it's a very have- horny pirate, Alex. Hard <laughs> <laughs> R. Yeah. No, but no, but I, I feel like I feel like when you have explicit sexual content in American film, it, it yes. puts it in this like other zone. Yep. That it would now feel like incongruous to have it also be a life affirming, whimsical, you know, sweet little love story. And exactly. uh, and I and I I think it's a testament to just yeah how French this movie ultimately is that there's not that hang up. There's not that concern about, oh my God, we've like shown some explicit sexual content. So now this is like a super adult, like ban it from the kids movie. Um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a frankness, like you said, about sexuality. It's just a fact of life. Nothing yeah. special about it. Nothing, no big deal. It's just there. Mm-hmm. With like enough finesse though, to like still have it be you know, like it can be sexy when it needs to be. Because that, you know, there are Wes Anderson films where like randomly, like, you know, that person is like naked for no reason in the corner of the frame. And so it's doing a little bit of that, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, nudity, sexuality is just part of life, but also it's like so cold and detached (laughs) that it it feels like pushing too hard the other way. And I feel like that's where this movie feels like a nice, like finesse in this, this place that, like you're saying, might only be able to come from a different culture. 
Right. Well, it's not making a point about it. Right. Right. It's not trying to make a point of like, these people are so. One way or the other. Right. Exactly. These people are so detached that sex means nothing. Right. Like, (laughs) that's not the point of it at all. And at the same time, it's not like the heavy burden of like, well, these people had sex. So now that there's all these like love entanglements and feelings and emotions and also all of the Puritan like hang up that we have here in the U.S. (laughs) about sex. But yeah, it's just this very light touch on all of it where it's. Nino just works at the sex shop and his coworkers just dancing, you know, and there's nudity <laughs> and that's her job. And he's works there with her and whatever. Like I, I love those scenes. I love all of the other like sort of treatment of it throughout. It just strikes the right tone. And it makes that moment when Nino comes to the door and they actually do meet face to face. And, you know, they have that first kiss that you talked about or several in a row <laughs> right there. It makes that, feel different and special and Mm. elevated in a way where it's like, we understand the vulnerability that it took for Amelie to get here. And it's not that she's never kissed anybody before, right? I feel like that Uh that would be the really bad, obvious way to do it, (laughs) right? right. right? She's never had a boyfriend, whatever. (laughs) It's not that at all. It's that this person actually knows her in a way. And she has, she really does have feelings on the line. Here And it took everything for her to run to the door to go and get him. And so I think that that's it. Having sex be present in places earlier in the movie gets you that tension in the climax where it actually feels like something romantic is happening for the first time surrounding sex, even though Mm. that aspect of life has already been present. Cool. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take away from Amelie? Brian, do you want to start? Uh, Sure. I learned that when you name your daughter after Audrey Hepburn, she just grows up to look exactly like her, which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, I was thinking, like, going off of the sex thing, it's sort of obvious, but just telling, showing what people like and dislike tells you a lot about a character, period, right? On the Indiana Jones episode, I talked about sort of crafting this character who just being like, all you have to say to someone is like, hate snakes, whip. And they're like, done. I already know who you're talking about. And this movie does that with every character, basically. So Mm -hmm. when you, 20 minutes from now, you're like, oh, it's Bubble Wrap guy. I know that guy. He likes Bubble Wrap. And, you know, it it doesn't necessarily tell you who the character is, 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 right? But it does help you familiarize yourself with them. It helps you remember them. And it certainly tells you something about them. So Trisha, what you were saying about sex being present, it's like the two times we hear Amelie mention sex is the hilarious bored sex that we see her have, uh, you know, and like right, she, right, yeah. she tried it and it was fine, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But then this sort of like, she's wondering how many people are having mm-hmm. orgasms or at like right in that moment, it's 15. And so it's like, it's still like a curiosity to her and something Mm -hmm. that she is sort of interested in, but just having someone who is bored by sex, but loves creme brulee and sticking her hand in a, in a thing, right? Like that just tells, that does tell you so much about who the character is. And obviously you can't have a narrator always saying, this is what this character likes in your movie, but obviously you can write that into your script, you can, mm-hmm. you know, have them say what they like or show them doing things that they like. And it just helps them feel unique and three-dimensional and that kind of thing. And as a personal exercise, it's something I like to do is when I'm writing something with multiple characters, I start thinking, what music does this character listen to? What mm-hmm. you know, movies does this character like? Because then even if all that does for me is start to 
find ways to separate those characters and find ways to generate conflict where it's like, I, I ne- may never say that this character thinks, you know, this movie is better than this movie. But now that I know that, now that's going to help me see who they are as I'm writing a scene or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, pretty simple one. This movie just does really well. It's just tell us what your character's like. And don't yeah. Yeah. One. Some lesson from either a book or a show or a made up imaginary past of mine or whatever. But that was basically like, you know, if you ask someone to tell you what they're like, you're going to get a complex, weird, you know, we're not good at evaluating who we are in a lot of ways. But if you go into somebody's bedroom and spend like two seconds there, you get a really good impression of like who they are because of what they put on the walls or what they don't put on the walls. And like, maybe they have a huge Blu-ray collection. Maybe they have a poster with like positive messages on it in the background, (laughs) whatever it might be. It's a visual joke for our video patrons. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, just that that's, I think, like you're saying, that's a really good lesson and that there are these external things that we use to express ourselves and maybe even subconscious ways that can get to our deeper cores in a really efficient way. And you should study that if you're a storyteller. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Alex, what's your lesson? So my lesson is about visual effects uh, because this movie, very much yeah. like very much like Black Swan, which you talked about recently with Maggie Mae Fish, you know, we, we talked about in Black Swan, there's like, how many visual effects shots, Michael? Like 300, 300 something? Yeah, something. But they're very subtle. They're, they're, they're woven into this otherwise very gritty movie. They, they don't, they sometimes are very obvious, but other times not obvious at all and very subtle and kind of just psychological. And I think it just is a good reminder that visual effects don't have to be only associated with action movies or these big flashy uses. Like this movie uses a ton of visual effects for just getting us into a, like a mind space or, uh, you know, putting together a puzzle that Amelie just, just kind of solved in her mind uh, th- there's so many different ways that like Amelie's world and her emotions and her just state of mind are created through visual effects in this movie. And, and I'm happy that like that palette was available for, for this kind of movie. Cause usually you think, well, this is smaller kind of character study movie visual effects just don't belong here, but I would love to see more visual effects used this way. You know, I think, not every movie should be Amelie where everything is kind of a fantasy interpretation of the world. But I do think there's probably more opportunities than we realize to incorporate visual effects into films that aren't obviously visual effects films. And this is a great film to, to look at of just like, wow, look how much creativity, how much artistry uh, went into the visual effects of this film that is on its surface, a very small character story. Uh, and look how much just beauty and creativity came out of embracing visual effects in a story like this. It's such a clever way to externalize the character's like internal journeys, Mm -hmm. because in this case you have two really introverted central characters and that, you know, don't really have anyone else to talk to because one of the ways that we often, you know, talk track a character's journey is through dialogue. Mm. But when you have characters that are introverted, it feels disingenuous to just like, you know, make them say what they feel. And so having visual effects, and there are a number of ways the movie does this, but like 
the scene where, you know, her lamp is like turns to look at her <laughs> right. or whatever. And and those pictures that Nino has that start talking to each other and talking right. to him. Yeah. Um, and all those all of those little moments. That's a critical scene, right? Where Nino is talking to those photographs about Amelie and his hopes and like, what does she want? You know, you know about her, like, tell me about her. And um, we know it's all in his imagination, right? But it's a critical scene where we get an insight into where Nino is at and and what he like might be open to and, and all of this stuff. And so I think, yeah, all of those, it's, it's film, you know, it's supposed to be visual, so right. finding ways to yeah, use the, all of the tools, the toolbox to make a, a character's journey visual and entertaining. And in this case, whimsical as hell. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's always so fun when movies, like you're saying, Trisha, it's like there's so many tools in the toolbox. A lot of time they're used to try to create a, a copy of reality or a believable world. Mm. And right. it's really fun when movies just go the opposite way. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. we're going to use all the tools to put you into the minds of the characters and tell a story. That's always, mm-hmm. always fun. Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, so on the top 10 podcast that I brought this up on, I the one scene that I got to mention was the scene where she helps the blind man down the street. Mm-hmm. And I was watching it again really carefully this time because that scene makes me cry every time. Mm-hmm. And... There are a number of reasons, and maybe I can just extrapolate lessons as I discuss them, but one of them is that's a character we know is a part of the world and the community that Amelie has not ignored before, but we've seen him be ignored before. Sure. That, you know, we see him earlier in the subway, he's like playing music and no one's listening to it, right? And and Amelie comes and gives him a coin, right? But then kind of just like moves on. Um, and we see him in the neighborhood too, and, and no one's really paying attention to him or helping him or anything like that. Um, so that's part of it. It's, it's a character that doesn't come totally out of nowhere, although his arc is relatively small or, or you know, his sort of place in this movie is mm-hmm. relatively small. But it speaks volumes about Amelie. It's like one of those amazing character choices that exists not for a plot reason, but just mm. for a character reason, for the central character. And often we see this choice, this kind of choice, it usually comes right at the top when the character is introduced, right? And we have a few of those moments where like the first test of like, who is this character? And usually, you know, it's in the first five pages and it never has anything to do with anything else. It just kind of tells us who the character is. Save the sort cat. of like a, a cold open <laughs> choice, if, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that, and we have a few of those, you know, when we first meet Amelie and, and all kinds of things, you know, we hear about her likes and dislikes and her childhood and, and stuff like that. But this moment where one of the first, it's the first person she helps after she gives the guy back his box, mm. right? She's just inspired. It's not a stratagem. It's not premeditated. She just sees this man that she kind of knows on the street, grabs his arm and starts telling him about things that he can't experience with any of his senses. So that's the thing, too. She's not patronizing him. Like, she's not telling him just, like, stuff that she hears or feels, right? right? Because he can experience those things. 
she's telling him specifically things that he can't know because he can't see. So she's saying like, oh, here's the deal on groceries at the the grocers, right? Here's the deal on plums or whatever it is. And, and here's this woman that I've observed these things about her that you would only know if you were her neighbor and had seen her multiple times. She's sharing insight that she has gained by living as a seeing person. So she's throwing open a, open a window to a person who has been isolated and on the fringes of society, where in a way she recognizes herself in this other person um, and is making a change. It's the real departure moment for her where, you know, she vows to become a do-gooder, yeah. mm-hmm. as the, the script says. And I think if if the movie immediately launched us into, well, now she's got a big plan about that her dad's garden gnome and about, you know, whatever else her big plans are about her, her coworkers is she just sees this opportunity. And in this new lease on life that she has, she dives right into it. And that tells us so much about Amelie and it gives this movie so much momentum in the second act as a departure from the first act, as a break into two, if you want to call it that, which I think is a right. fair characterization of that moment, mm-hmm. it's a great break into two that if if this is possible where she, you know, gives this transcendent moment to a disabled neighbor, if this is possible, then what is she going to do next? And it keeps us wondering. So even though one little storyline is resolved in the first act, there's so much more that we start to wonder about what's coming next down the pipeline. It's brilliant. It's lovely. Um, it's just so well executed. I just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and speaking of visual effects, that ends with this yep. beautiful, like, visualization exactly. of, of the inner state of the of the man, yes. you know? Like, he has this moment, like, this peak experience. He levels up. He levels <laughs> up. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, yeah, and, and as we said, you know, her, eventually it's that same journey that she's on will go dark and there will be a bad side of it. But like you're saying, it's a great way to get us on board with mm-hmm. this thing that will ultimately be revealed to have problems. My lesson is also just kind of a simple one. And this metaphor, I think, came from connecting it to Coraline. But just as we talked about earlier, the interconnected web of all the characters and yep. the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I love movies that take the time to fill fill it all out and have everybody, you know, one thing happens and those vibrations touch everybody's or travel through mm-hmm. the web and it, it it makes the experience of the film feel so rich. Like by the end, you feel like you've spent a ton of time in this world and lived there and it just it it feels so like full. And a lot of times I think movies can feel empty if they're too focused or or don't pay enough attention to how our characters change the world and how the world changes them and and Mm -hmm. that interaction. And I think this is an excellent example of uh, creating that interconnected web and having it be thematically resonant, as you were talking about, Tricia, and also just what it does for the viewer's experience, I think is, is undeniable. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. What have you guys been watching? Eeny, meeny, miny. Alex, what have you been watching? <laughs> so if you are a cinephile in Los Angeles, you probably know about American Cinematheque, which hosts mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, screenings of older films. They used to do the stuff at the Egyptian Theater, which is, reno- I think, closed for renovations right now. So we haven't had like an East Side American Cinematheque Theater in LA for a while. But they just took over the Los Feliz 3 like a month ago. And mm. so I went for the first time the other night to see uh, Bad Education, the Pedro oh, okay. Almodovar film. 
Ooh, which I'd oh. never seen. It was one that I'd wanted to see for years. And it was a great experience. I sat like in the front row because it's like kind of a small theater. So like the front row is like still works. Just center front row seeing this uh, great movie. And yeah, Education. Wow, what a what a subversive, dark, interesting film. It was not anything like, like I expected. I didn't know much about it except for, you know, it, it involved a story about some stuff with like, you know, Catholic sexual abuse. And it was a kind of a queer story. But it's a, also a really cool movie formally because it's like a movie within a movie within a movie. Like there's a script in the movie and there's like a reality in the movie and story and like a story within the script. So just from like a kind of script construction perspective, really clever devices. And, and the opening titles kind of had a Hitchcockian throwback feel to them. So it's like, it's this really remarkable film. It's both like, it's like rated NC-17. It's a very like explicit movie. It's very gay. Gael Garcia Bernal is like amazing in it. Mm-hmm. But it's also this like kind of cool, twisty, what's reality, what's fiction, stories within stories kind of movie. So Bad Education, if you're down for a subversive, dark, interesting film, highly recommended. That was another wow. one of the movies that I rented during my foreign <laughs> DVD oh, rental nice. at Hollywood. Uh-huh, very nice. Years. That ties in in a funny way to my What Am I Watching, which is it's not often that you – a movie that you recently watched is in the movie we're podcasting about. But I recently watched Jules and Jim, the Truffaut oh, wow, movie, yeah. which is oh, it's so good. briefly in uh, in Amelie. And yeah, like it's it's super interesting. It's about two men who meet this – the same woman and, and both fall in love with her and she kind of falls in love with both of them. And funnily enough, it reminded, I was like, oh, this is a precursor to E2 Mama Tambien and yep. Bandits and some of these other movies mm. where there's conflict, but it's not the obvious conflict. It's not, oh, they're fighting over. It. It's more like, how do we make this situation work because we all care about each other, which is like mm-hmm. so much more interesting than just people trying to one-up each other. Um, but funnily enough, American Cinematheque recently did a double feature of Itu Mama Tambien with Gael Garcia Bernal and Jules and Jim. So I was like, all right. Nice. I, was, I didn't make that up. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's part of this like French New Wave thing, which I've just started experiencing because I didn't go to film school and wasn't forced to watch all these movies, uh, you know, mm. when I was 20. But Scorsese actually said it was a huge influence on Goodfellas because it was it's like this punk rock filmmaking is the way that he described it, where it's just like the camera's here and it's spinning around and like there's crazy shots, but it's all it's all making you feel stuff, right? It's making you feel like you are part of this adventure that these characters go on kind of like, you know, what Amelie would do 40 years later. Um, So yeah, I don't want to say too much about what the actual plot is other than just that. It's about three people and the relationships that they have with each other. And Trisha is a fan. I love it. If you haven't watched Jules and Jim, like go right now, like just go right (laughs) now and watch it. Let's talk French New Wave sometime, Brian. There you go. I have just watched a lot. Yes. Yay. Okay, good. (laughs) Does it count if I watched the Wes Anderson commercial with Leia Seydoux for Prada that's based no. on that? No. <laughs> no. Uh, right. Sorry. Okay. Good try. Want to check. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Great. Awesome. Trisha, what have you been watching? So I have a French TV show that I would like to recommend, mm. which is a bit late because everyone told me I should watch it and I finally did. And the third season of it came out earlier this year, but I watched Lupin. And it's great. <laughs> like, I talked about that at, for my What Am I Watching on Black Swan with Bangamay Fish. And one of the things I mentioned in that is that I wanted to talk to you about it because I was watching it and I was like, this is a Trisha thing. Trisha's got to watch it. So I'm very excited that you've been watching. I want to hear awesome. it continue. 
Okay. Yeah. So I finally like sat down and watched the whole thing of it because everyone had been telling me that I absolutely needed to watch it and they were right because it's so heisty and twisty and genuinely full of like, I don't know. It just feels really well grounded while also being slick. I would, I would like describe it as being kind of like a slick heisty, you know, thief kind of crime series. And yet at the same time, parts of it feel really sharply observed. And, you know, so Amelie was criticized a little bit when it came out for being this depiction of Paris that is not realistic for a variety of reasons. As we discussed, Mm -hmm. it's very clean is thing number one, (laughs) but it was also, it was also criticized for being not a very diverse film and, you know, pointing out that there are lots of political and racial tensions in the city and were at the time. And the movie is not about any of them. It's like, look at this community of white people that are (laughs) just going to their local grocers and Mm -hmm. sticking their hand into sacks of grain. I don't know. (laughs) Right. Right. So if you want something French from recent years that dives head on into political and racial tension in the city, Lupin is that while still being a really, really fun ride and being, you know, this incredible, like sort of crime, capery, really entertaining, twisty thing. So I really enjoyed it. I guess there's going to be more question mark. I think I read that. I haven't finished. Uh, there's one episode left. That I oh, okay. Seen, so I'm, I'm very excited. I'm pretty sold right after based this. on hearing both you and Michael talking mm. about this show. Yeah, it's, it's yes. It's you know, really Michael fun. recommended that I wasn't, but now that Trisha is. Yeah, now I'm sold. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, me too. Trisha's recommendations <laughs> are always more compelling than mine. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you were watching it. I can't wait to talk to you about it more off mic, Michael. Um, or maybe we can talk about it over in the Discord, because mm, I bet yeah. we have mm. some Lupin fans over there, and I don't think it has Jacques come up yet. Hughes. So, <laughs> yes, some, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Only about the little dog whose name is Jacques, but yes. Anyway, Lupin, really excellent. If you are down to watch French things, then you can choose from mine or Brian's <laughs> recommendations so far. <laughs> Lots of Every, French. Everything French I've watched recently is at least 20 years old, if not 50. So, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe if you're looking for something more recent, go for it. There you go. Modern French t- television. Yeah. Awesome. I watched Cruella. Yeah. Oh. I really liked it. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with Cruella. <laughs> So, yeah, if somehow you don't know, it's like, you know, the the back, the origin story of Cruella DeVille from 101 Dalmatians. Emma Stone as Estella slash Cruella. They're, they do some interesting things with kind of this Dr. Jekyll Hyde thing going on. And Emma Thompson as like, you know, the antagonist, the Baroness. Emma Thompson is wonderful to watch do things. Always. Emma Stone is wonderful to watch do things. I am not like a costumes clothing person. And even I was like, wow, the clothing is happening in this movie. Like, oh, very much. I, there is much clothing happening here. <laughs> and, you know, from the trailers, I was a little bit like, what? Why? I mean, okay, sure. Okay. But the the style, I thought it was really fun. I feel like, you know, it's a little bit of a heist movie also. So it, it has is. some of that crime heistiness to it. It's like a, also a period movie. Also a period movie, well-structured, I think a really interesting approach to it. And I was watching it and I was like, I'm getting some Devil Wears Prada vibes here. Mm. And I'm getting a little bit of the favorite vibes here. Mm. Uh And Aline Brush McKenna, story by credit. And Tony McNamara, screenplay credit, who wrote the favorite and the Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that much, but really enjoyed myself. And 
again, Emma Stone feels like unfair. It, it's I've said it before that like Emma Stone is like might be the Meryl Streep of our generation. I'm going to keep standing behind that, I think. All right. To the point where like the way that Meryl Streep is sometimes annoying because she's so good <laughs> and the movie knows that she's so good. It's like, okay, fine, calm down, everybody. There's like a couple moments in this and like one long take in particular where it's just like Emma Stone is just like, it's a long take. She's giving this great performance. It's like, okay, yeah, I know, movie, okay? Like, <laughs> you can do this because it's Emma Stone playing young Cruella DeVille. Like, congratulations. <laughs> anyway, but I really enjoyed it. It's now available on Disney+. Plus. Wow. My mom, bless her heart, watched it and still didn't know that it was a 101 Dimensions uh, prequel. Aw. Yeah. Well, there aren't actually any what? real Dalmatians in it. Sure. So that's yeah. understandable. But like, yeah. there are a lot of CG dogs. <laughs> right. like, we have dogs. Like, like yeah, we, but... have, we have access to dogs that you can train. And like, <laughs> we'll do things. Yeah. I feel like it was, it was really interesting this tracking the CGI know. dogs. <laughs> Some of them are very good. Some of them are adorable. Sometimes you get little performance moments where I was like, is that a real dog? No, it's CG. But like, I understand and good work, everybody. Uh, so... <laughs> Wow. I don't know. I liked it. And also, as I was watching, I was like, I haven't seen 101 Dalmatians in forever, but suddenly, like, glimpses of it are appearing in my brain and synapses Mm. are firing that hadn't. So it was also just really fun to, like, relive my childhood slowly through memories flashing back while watching Cruella. So thumbs up from Michael on Cruella. Love it. Yeah. This has been our conversation about Amelie. I want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons on Patreon for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet, say hi if you're enjoying the podcast, or not, that's fine. Leave us a review on iTunes, <laughs> it always helps. And uh, don't leave we, us a bad review. Yeah, wait, Michael, what are you saying? I'm, you know, no pressure either way. Whatever you want to do with your life. Is leave fine. us a great review. Leave us a five star you. review. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Please. If you've listened to the end of the episode and didn't like yeah, it, yeah, that's a really good I am point. actually really curious. So <laughs> write us whatever review you want. Yeah. If you're still listening currently, <laughs> send us an email even of like what you th- anyway. Thank you everybody for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.